It's a joy to be together to worship with you all. I know that in seasons of illness and struggle, it is good to be able to praise that wonderful name of Jesus. Today we're continuing our study in Hebrews, and um, there's an interesting problem that we face if we claim to be a Christian, or a unique challenge that we have. And that unique challenge and struggle we have is that we have a faith, and we have a faith based on a book, the Bible, that claims that this world that we see is not all that there is. That there is more to the world, more to life than just what we see with our eyes. And not only that, we're told that there is something after death. That after our life on earth is finished, that we either experience heaven with God, with Christ, or eternal separation from Him in hell. And that is the message of the Bible, the message we believe. And maybe you're here, or maybe you're listening, and uh, you d- don't believe that. You don't think that there's a heaven and hell after this life. But that is what God's Word says. If you take the time to read it and look at it, you will discover that there is that eternity in front of us. And we trust what God's Word says. So I'm not going to spend time today defending that. If you want to have a conversation about that, I would be more than happy to do so. But this morning, I'm going to assume that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. But that's, that's not our problem. That, that's, that's not our issue. Our issue is that not only do we believe that there is a heaven and a hell, but we believe we know something more about it. We believe that we know the way to heaven. And we know the way to avoid or be saved from hell. And that way is not something we do. It's not good works or actions that we take that we stack on top of one another. But instead, it is trust and confident expectation in the work of Jesus Christ. And that is glorious, wonderful news. Because of what he has done, we can know our eternal future. We can have hope for eternity with God. That's our situation, but there's two problems with that. If we're people who believe that this word is true, that there is a heaven and a hell, and we believe that we know the way to heaven, we know how we can get there, the issue we run into is that there's some who claim to be Christians, but they cling to this hope falsely. They think they know God. They think they know that they're on the way to heaven, but but they don't, and they're not, and their lives prove that they have not been changed by God. And the second issue we may run into is we may know the way there, but we may be burdened. We may feel in ourselves that we don't know God, or we may feel that He cannot love us, when the reality may be that they actually do know God, but they're overwhelmed by this feeling of maybe I'm separated from Him. The scary truth that we'll encounter someday is that we will arrive in heaven and there will be some people there that we did not expect to see and there will be some that we expected to see but are not and that happens because of two traps that we can fall into that's the trap of false hope thinking we know the way but we don't or the trap of no hope thinking there's no chance for us when there actually is and what's so fascinating about our passage today is it addresses both of these issues both of these extremes and presents us with the way forward. It challenges us to break free from false hope and to also break free from feelings of no hope. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews 
chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 12 today. You can use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one. The words will also be up on the screen. Once you are there, Hebrews 6 asks you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4. The author says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, that land receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. It's near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. But verse 9 says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. The last time we were in Hebrews, we looked at how he critiqued them for their lack of maturity. He said they didn't even know the basics of the faith. They were struggling so much. They still needed milk and not solid food. And today he continues his warning, first of all, by pointing out how Jesus is better than false hope. Jesus is better than false hope is what he addressed first. Now these verses, we'll walk through them in a minute, but these verses, particularly Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, these are some of the most difficult and challenging verses in the New Testament in order to understand what the author is saying. And there are many different uh, Christians, believers, followers of God who will come to different conclusions about these verses. There's a lot of nuance and detail, and you may agree part or may disagree with something over here, If you're a part of this church, you know how much I love quoting Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin. I was on mostly the same page, but there were a couple points I was different from them. And so I I didn't rely on them as much preparing this message as I normally do. Some people look at this passage, not those guys, but there's others who look at this passage and these words that we read, and the conclusion they come to is the author seems to be saying that we can lose our salvation. It seems that it's possible to lose the faith behind and lose salvation. The problem is that there's other places in Scripture that make it clear that we cannot lose true faith in God. They make it clear that if we know Him, He holds on to us. God keeps us safe. One of the most powerful ones, I think, are the words of Jesus Himself in John chapter 10. There Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice. My sheep, My people, I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Those strong words of Jesus show me that we cannot lose this true faith. So something else must be going on here in Hebrews. I think what's going on here 
is that while we cannot lose true faith, there is such a thing as false salvation, false faith, and false hope. And I believe that's what the author is warning us about here. Now, in our human nature, we don't like warnings. We like positive messages, messages of encouragement. But warnings are important. They show us that something is serious. They're also an encouragement to us to persevere in our faith and what we believe. We should not be deceived by false hope. We should not think that we know Jesus when nothing has changed in our lives. So I think there's two truths the author's communicating about this false hope in these verses. We're going to look at both of them using the outline. This should be the kind of second blank or letter A. It says, it is possible to look like a Christian but leave. The author seems to be conveying that it's possible to look like a Christian on the outside, but then leave the faith and never come back. It's possible to look like a Christian, but leave. And these verses here warn about this danger of falling away. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. They say, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Well, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. They're holding Him up to contempt, to ridicule. They're saying you can teach people again and again, but there's some who when they leave, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. That word impossible is emphasized here in this passage. The author wants us to feel this powerful warning. What he's saying is that you can participate in a church community, you can look like you're a part of the church, but you're really not a part of it. One scholar, George Guthrie, put it this way, a true relationship in God results in a lifestyle of obedience to God. Not just looks on the outside, but we're following him in every aspect of our life. And if we're not obeying God, If there hasn't been a change in our life, if we know Jesus, then that strongly suggests that there is not a relationship with him. It can look really good on the outside. Look at these verses and how these people are described. They're said to be enlightened. They've learned the truths of the faith. They heard the gospel. They understood it. But they did not truly believe it. It says that they've tasted, they've experienced the heavenly gift Maybe this is a reference to the Lord's Supper or fellowship uh, community among brothers and sisters in Christ. They've experienced the gifts, the benefits of being a part of a church. They experience God's work in the lives of the people in the church. If you want an example of this, if you know the story of the Old Testament, God brought his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt, and he needed to give them food in the wilderness, so he provided this type of bread, this wafer substance called manna that appeared on the ground each morning. Every single Israelite got to have some of that manna. They got to taste some of God's goodness. But many of them, their disobedience later revealed that they didn't really know him. They looked like they were a part of God's people, but their actions proved that they don't have a relationship with him. Our text says that they are partakers or companions, sharers in the work of the Holy Spirit. They witness what God's Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers. So they may look like other members of the church. 
verse 5 says they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've heard God's Word taught and preached. They've seen that God uses His Word to powerfully change people. They've looked at the lives of others and seen, wow, this person's heard God's Word, he's read God's Word, and I can see the difference he's made that it's made in that person's life, but it's not making a difference in mine. I can see there are these Christians who they read the Bible and they do good things in the world. They make a difference in the world around them for God's glory. Unbelievers and false believers can see this. When there's a crisis community, the government organizations, communities say, well, why isn't the, their churches helping with this? They know that people in the church have been changed by God and act on his behalf. They know that God makes a difference through his word, the Bible. In some ways, these actual unbelievers, those with false hope, they may be a part of this because they could be connected to a church. They could be involved in a service project a church is doing, a service project that God uses to draw people to the church. But what is the point of what he's saying? Well, verse 6 tells us that some may experience all of that, but then fall away. And if that's the case, they're unlikely to return. Now, to be clear, this falling away is not, I, I, had, a, I had a one little sin last week. That's not what we're talking about, but a sustained, committed rejection of Jesus, leaving the church and his people and saying, I want nothing to do with Christ. In this book we're reading, the book of Hebrews, it seems to be talking about those who have left the Christian faith and wanted to go back to Judaism. They no longer said they believed in Jesus. They did not think he was better than their old way of life. And having deliberately rejected Christ, it may appear impossible from a human perspective to restore, to renew them, and bring them back among God's people. This isn't something that just shows up here. This shows up multiple times in Scripture. Two examples are here. One is the Apostle John said this would happen. He uses these words. He says about those people who left that they went out from us, but they were not of us. They did not really belong. If they had been of us, the way that we would know that is that they would have continued with us. But they went out. They left. That it might be plain. It might be obvious that they all are not of us. Peter kind of uses these words from Hebrews about how serious this is. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, let me be clear here. I'm not saying if somebody leaves the church that they're lost forever. God can work in hearts and minds. God's the one who does the impossible. But I think the author's pointing out a an observation that we see reflected in life, that those who are really a part of things in the church and then leave, it's often unlikely for them to be back. And I mean leave the Christian faith. It's unlikely for them to return. And the reason for that is because when people reject Christ, it is impossible for them to find any other way than Jesus to be restored to God. After all, Jesus was the one who said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. That's what the author's saying in these verses. He's saying, if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, but then we reject his faith, if we reject him, what we're doing, verse 6 says, is we're really crucifying him once again. 
That's a powerful image in verse 6. They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. To leave the faith is to be like those who mocked Jesus when he was on the cross. They hold him up to contempt. Like those who were glad that he was dead. This is, you imagine, that must be seriously offensive to God. Such actions hold Christ in public, shameful contempt, open disgrace. It's an offense against Jesus. But this passage does make clear, it uses words in the present tense. They are crucifying him again. They are holding him up to contempt. It's something they're doing right now. It's possible for them to stop, but those who leave in this way rarely come back. And their rejection earns God's judgment. We'll read about this later in the book of Hebrews. It says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the Spirit of grace? Hebrews 10 goes on to say, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people last phrase it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living god i know these are not easy verses to read but it is god's word these are scary passages of scripture and it should instill in us a kind of healthy fear of drifting away from god if we are true believers we cannot lose our salvation but we should still be afraid or at least call out to God that we don't want to be trapped by our desire to sin and turn away from him. So if this is true, if there's some who look like they're Christians, but then they leave, what should we do? What should be our response to that? Well, the author tells us, he tells us to check the fruit. And that's your second blank there. So if there are those who look like they're Christians but leave, we should check the fruit. The way that we can tell if we know God is if our life is defined by faithfulness, fruitfulness for him. And our degree of faithfulness shows whether or not we know him. New life in Christ has results, results that we almost always can see. He gives us an illustration of this in verses 7 and 8. He looks at fields and he says this, for a land that has drunk the rain, that rain has fallen on it. It produces a crop that's useful to those for the sake of who it is cultivated. That that land that gets rain, that crops grow, that land receives a blessing from God. But if there's land somewhere that had crops planted on it, but all it bears is thorns and thistles, well, that's a worthless field. It's near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. The author is saying here that those who know Christ, they're like a cultivated field that is useful produces a useful, beneficial crop. But those who reject him are like useless fields that produce thorns, thistles, briars. Their work, their crops, their life is not not doing anything for God's purposes. This imagery he's using, he's pulling from the Old Testament. God often spoke this way of his people, the Israelites. They were supposed to be following him, but they were often doing exactly the opposite. The book of Isaiah says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked at their lives for justice, but behold, he saw bloodshed. They were hurting others. He looked for righteousness, but behold, people were outcrying. You are not being 
righteous. Bad fruit. If we do not see someone with a life that's been changed by God, that, that shows us in almost clear, 100% clear terms, we don't know someone's heart, but it shows us more than likely this individual is not a true Christian. And so their field, their witness, their claim to be a Christian will be rejected. The way this looks for us, friends, it's we have in Scripture what it looks like when someone knows God and their life's been changed by Him. If someone is not living out the fruit of the Spirit we have, that gives us the character qualities of someone following God. If someone's not living out Christ's Sermon on the Mount, which talks about the radically different way that His people live. If someone's not consistently living out the character of Christ, then we should doubt their claim to be Christian or be saved. It would be irresponsible of us not to. It'd be irresponsible to brush that aside and say, oh, but I, I, I know them. No, if their life is not showing it, then we should speak to them. Not so we can judge them and say, well, I'm a better Christian than that person. No, that's not it at all. But to say you claim to be a Christian, but your life is not reflecting it. So we can warn them of the danger of that false hope. If someone's not producing fruit, then the evidence suggests they're not a believer. And Jesus makes it clear what will happen to those who do not produce good fruit, whose lives are not changed by him. This is John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We need Christ. But verse 6 says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. It's not my words, not author Hebrew. That, that's Jesus' words there. Now, Friends, this is why I preach through Scripture. I'm letting God's Word speak here. It isn't something I enjoy doing. This would be a moment that, that every single part of me on the inside wants to now just say, but, but I'm not trying to scare you. I want to say that, but for this week, today, for this message, I am trying to scare you. That's not something I, I like to do, but that, that is, I think, the, the truth we should see here. A life that has not been changed by Christ a life that rejects Jesus and his people, our author is saying that is a life under judgment. And you can be very involved in a church, but starting well does not equal finishing well. It doesn't take much for us to stretch our imaginations to remember people or think about professed Christians who have walked away from the faith. Now, to, to be clear on that, there are some who they struggle with things in the church. And some people start that journey with the best of intentions. They see sin and hypocrisy in the church. and They're like, I'm not sure about this particular church that, that I'm a part of. And I understand seeing that. And so let me encourage you, you should always feel free to express any doubts that you have. I'm really struggling with this I'm seeing. Please speak to that. If you have a question, why do you say this but people do this, please ask that question. Talk about it. I'd much rather you express doubts and ask questions than drift away. Because when those doubts lead us to reject Jesus, then we're in an extremely dangerous place. And it's good for us to have a healthy fear of these words in Scripture. Again, that scholar George Guthrie, I think he said it well, he said, a healthy perspective on life 
involves a certain amount of healthy fear. And so examples of those who have failed, when those things are used as warnings, that can play an important role in developing healthy spiritual fear. And and look at that phrase, healthy spiritual fear. Not pride, not I'm better than that person. That person says they know Jesus, but they don't follow Jesus like I do. No, no, not, not that. Healthy fear of I'm no different from that person who left. God, I need you to keep me close to you or I would be just like that person. But for the grace of God, go I. It's a call for us to own our faith so that Christ can make a difference in our lives. We should not be deceived by false hope. But let's switch gears and look at the other side of the picture. Not only should we not be deceived by that false hope, we also shouldn't be enslaved by despair of having no hope. Because Jesus is also better than no hope. He's better than false hope, and he is better than having no hope. The truth that's reflected in these verses, uh, I have the phrase there, kind of that A and B. The A phrase is, it is possible for us to have full assurance. It is possible to have full assurance. And by mean by that assurance of salvation, to know that we are saved. We see this in our text right here, that extremely harsh warning, that difficult passage, the very next verse, verse 9, the author tells us that what he was just talking about, he doesn't think that describes most people in this church. Verse 9, he says, though we speak of the, in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things belonging to salvation. Yeah, he's been very harsh on them. He said, you're immature, you have milk, These are, this is the danger you have of drifting and falling away, yet in your case, I'm sure of better things. Generally, for most people he's writing about, there are better things in store for them, namely salvation. One pastor I was reading named F.B. Meyer put it this way, kind of using that agriculture image that the author was just talking about. He said, the great farmer will not cast us off so long as there is one redeeming feature in our condition. The author is confident in the Hebrews. He wants to encourage them to persevere. Look how he speaks to them. It's almost a complete change. He speaks to them as his beloved, his dear friends. He states his conviction that he believes they know God. We feel sure of better things, things belonging to salvation. He wants to motivate them. He wants to express confidence in them. He says, I I said all that. It's dangerous to drift away. You should stay away from that. but, But let me tell you, I think you can do it. I have confidence in you. This is the other side of the coin. Back in verse 6, we talked about those who hold Christ in contempt. They mock Jesus. And so I think he's putting this grace right here. He's saying those who've rejected Christ mock him for their lives and what they do. I think generally speaking, though, if we're afraid that I've done that, if I mocked Christ, if I brought reproach on him, if we have that fear, I think that's a good indication that most likely we are a part of his family and know him. If we're afraid of hurting Christ and bringing shame on him, and I think in many cases that shows our heart for him. What we were talking about then was rejecting Christ through consistent choices and actions, not a temporary season of wrestling with sin. This passage is the good news to balance out that bad news. 
One guy I, I read writing about this was a Puritan. So somebody who lived hundreds of years ago named Thomas Manton. And I think he, he spoke well here. He said, a godly man is afraid of losing God. A carnal, a sinful man is afraid of finding him. So if we feel in us a fear, what, what if I'm far from God? I think that's a good indication that God's doing work in our hearts. But if we're not thinking about it, if we're like, I, I don't really have time to think about God, then I think that's a dangerous place to be. If we love God, if we want to please him, it should be an encouraging sign. The author is telling us we can persevere to the end. We can have what we hoped for. And in that, we can find assurance. Back in chapter 3, we, we read a verse that was speaking about this. And I really liked how, looking at it again, how the New Living Translation put it. It said, and we are God's house. We belong to God if we keep our courage and we remain confident in our hope in Christ. We don't have to wonder. We can know that we know Jesus Christ. We can have assurance. And here, in this passage, the author tells us how we can know. We can know that we have assurance. It's possible to have full assurance, letter B says, if we continue to love, if we faithfully, patiently continue to love, particularly to love other believers. How does the author here know that the Hebrews are saved? What is it that convinces him that they know Jesus? Because he sees their lives have been changed by Christ. And that, that he said, gives him assurance of their salvation. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 in our passage says, God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He believes God is just and faithful believes God will not overlook or forget what he sees these Hebrew believers doing for him. He sees how they're living for God, and that encourages him. Particularly, he sees their love for other believers, how they care for one another. They're not selfish. They put other Christians first. Jesus spoke that this was what would happen if we knew him. We would love other people who claim the name of Christ. In the book of Mark, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Serving others is how we serve God. Jesus goes on to say in the book of Matthew, he paints a picture of people before the judgment seat who Christ says that you've cared for me, you've visited me in prison, you've visited me when I was sick. And they said, when did we do this? And Jesus says, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I think our author here in the book of Hebrews is speaking about the same thing. He sees this in the lives of the people he's writing to. He sees that they're loving other believers and it convinces him that they are saved. Their acts of love make him confident in their faith. Now, let me be be clear about what, what we're saying here. I'm not saying that it's their works, their actions are what is saving them. I'm not, not saying that at all. It's not they're doing these things and that makes them right with God. It's that he looks at their lives. He sees that they're loving others and he says, this makes me confident that you know God. Their good works demonstrate their faith and love for the Lord. They are serving God because they love him. They love his name and reputation. 
They're serving and ministering to the saints. They're helping God's people. They're caring for other believers. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said, when we acknowledge anyone as a child of God, well, we ought to embrace him with brotherly love. And this is what the author sees. They're embracing one another with brotherly love. Paul would write it this way. He said, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, you're meeting the needs of other believers, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Paul's saying the way that you are serving others supplies their needs. Here he's particularly talking about giving money. The way you're, you're generously giving and supplying their needs, that leads to great praise of the Lord. You know, this idea here that the confidence is seen in how they're loving others, this may be surprising to you. It's, I feel like it's not something we, we talk about very often. The way that you can look at a life and see, oh, that person knows God, is, is not in how many Bible verses they know. It's not in how many Bible degrees they have. It's not in how often they're in the church building. It's not how many spiritual arguments they win online. No, the, the way you know is by seeing how they are loving other believers. That is the mark of a true Christian. That is how you can have assurance that you are saved. Now, I apologize to the guys in the back because this isn't in the notes, but um, I wanted to speak of an example of this that uh, struck in my mind as Many of you have probably heard our uh, sister in Christ, Carol, um, went home on Friday. And as my uh, wife and I were talking about it and some of our memories, we, we remembered some of the, our last conversations, last things we saw Carol. The last time Christine saw Carol was at the Christmas Eve service, where after the Christmas Eve service, as many left to go to their families. Carol got, someone gave her the vacuum. She was vacuuming up the candle uh, fragments that were left after our Christmas Eve service. Um, so someone else didn't have to. When she first went into the hospital, one of the first times I went in to see her uh, in our conversation, she was, she was not most concerned that she was in the hospital. She was not most concerned that uh, with her illness, uh, she was concerned that she wouldn't be there on Thursday in order to fold bulletins for Debbie and I, and that we would have to take time to do that, and she couldn't serve or help us in that way. Um, my wife was also remembering she uh, um, saw that kids were wanting something to, to write on or draw on during the service, and so she made, got a bunch of three-by-five cards together and stapled them and stuck them in the pew back so kids would have something to color on during the service. Friends, that's, that's love for others. When you see that, that's how you know someone's been changed by God. This is what our author wants us to see here in this passage, to look at someone's life and see the difference that it's made. He says in verse 11, that we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end. 
the author wants them to keep showing the same earnestness, seriousness, diligence, and commitment to love others. Because if they do that, if they keep doing that, then that will give them the assurance, the certainty of their salvation, their hope fully realized. This isn't just something he's saying. Others in Scripture say this. The Apostle John says in 1 John 3, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. If we're loving others, that's how we know we're of the truth. That's how we reassure our heart before God. We want reassurance before God that we're saved. We look and see, am I loving others and putting others first? Because then, whenever our heart condemns us, well, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. We may think, I don't know God, but if we say, wait a minute, though, I see how he's given me a heart to serve and love other people, not for anything I get out of it, but just to serve them. If I remind myself of that, that can reassure my heart before him. The author wants the Hebrews to keep doing this because if they stopped doing it, it would be evidence that he was wrong, that they did not have a relationship with God. They were not true believers. But if they continued in it, that's evidence of their true faith. So what should we do? How, how do we respond? What's the action we take from this? Well, he gets it in it in the very last verse. Verse 12, he says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We should not be sluggish. We should not be lazy. We should not be indifferent. We should imitate those who have faithfully followed God their whole lives. We can think about people we know. The author, it, as right after this verse, what we're going to get to the next time we're here, is he's going to look at the example of the life of Abraham. And his point is that faithful followers of God inherit and receive his promises. And the author will return to this at the very last chapter of the book. He'll come back to this theme in one verse. In Hebrews 13, 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's not a blanket endorsement of authority. That's an encouragement. Faithfully follow those who follow Jesus Christ. It's a call for faith and patient endurance through the difficulties of life. In chapter 10, he'll put it this way, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is the normal experience of God's people. We press on to the future, serving God, resting, hoping, trusting in the assurance that we see he's doing a work in our lives. Jesus would say this to a church. In the book of Revelation, it opens with Jesus having messages for churches. And one church, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed what you were doing at the first. He sees that and knows. Now, now in context, he's writing to a church that has a lot of problems and issues. That's not a perfect church. And you know what? Neither are we, but God sees, he values what we do for him now, and he will use it for his glory. You know, when I was first looking at this passage, I was like, oh, this is such a, a challenging scripture, it's so hard to understand, but then I got to the end here, and I realized this isn't 
hard, difficult, struggling passage. This is an encouragement to persevere. This is an encouraging passage about the confidence that we can have if we see Christ working in us and we're loving others each day. We gain confidence as we move one step closer to eternity each and every day. Now, friends, I, I, I just deliver God's word here. I, I cannot pronounce God's judgment over you. Only God truly knows your heart. But these two traps that we've looked at here, we need to be careful of, of both. On the one hand, we were talking about if you're claiming to believe in God and you say a prayer, you were baptized, you go to church, that does not prove that you are saved, that you know God. And if your confidence is based on one of those things, oh, I said a prayer back here, I was baptized back here, I go to church every week. If that is what you cling to as that's how I know I'm a Christian, then you are on shaky ground. I would urge you to, to repent, turn away from that, and ask Christ to change your life. Let that be your confidence. Because if your life is about sacrificially loving others, if your life is more and more each day being about caring for other believers and other people, and it's less and less about what you want for your life, if that is what your life looks like, then you have evidence of God's grace in your life. So let me encourage you to look at your life. Look at what the work God is doing to grow you to be more like Jesus. If you can see that work, then take confidence in it and have assurance of your faith. Again, this balance here between this false hope and, and no hope, I, I think at different parts of our Christian life, we may be more tempted to kind of drift into one or the other of these uh, deceptions. And I would say that the one that you're not struggling with right now may be the one that you struggle with at some point down the road. That you're either not thinking about God and just saying, oh, of course I'm saving. It's not, you, you're not actively thinking about how it's making a difference. Or perhaps later you'll get to a point where you're like, ah, I'm not sure if I'm saved. But I have good news for you. Or rather, God's word is good news for you. Jesus is better than false hope and no hope. He makes a difference in our lives, a difference that we can see, and that difference can give us assurance. And if we see the work he's doing, we have that assurance, well, then we can praise him for what he is doing, what he will continue to do until he brings us home to be with him. And we praise him because he alone is worthy.